Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, Renaissance man Mark Olshaker steps into the interrogation room to clear up a few things about his work. Mark is an Emmy award-winning filmmaker, acclaimed novelist, and New York Times bestseller whose career began in the Washington Bureau of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and soon saw his articles published in numerous international news publications. He's written and produced documentary films, and Mark's worked alongside leading experts in law enforcement, criminal justice, public health, disease prevention, intelligence, biodefense, and pandemic planning. He's a consultant to the U.S. Department of Justice Office for Victims of Crime and has served as a consultant to the National Library of Medicine. Of particular interest to me and my audience, in addition to his other accomplishments, is that Mark is also a longtime collaborator with retired FBI Special Agent and criminal profiler John Douglas. Their joint work began with the best-selling nonfiction Mindhunter, and the duo have sold millions of copies across the globe and in numerous languages. Their latest release, The Killer Across the Table, published in May to tremendous and immediate success, and the second season of the Netflix show Mindhunter drops in August 16th. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Mark. I greatly appreciate you making time. Thank you, Gavin. Thanks for having me. Now, this newest book is not only intriguing, but it's also an, an exceptional resource for anyone who wants to understand more about serial killers and the crime fighters who hunt them. For readers who are new to you and Special Agent Douglas's work, what should they know about the killer across the table? Well, it's very interesting, um, and you've asked exactly the right question. Uh, we started out uh, uh, kind of highlighting John's career with Mindhunter and showed how the behavioral profiling program of the FBI really got started. Uh, and the way it got started was uh, John and his colleague, Robert Ressler, who were then instructors at the FBI Academy, both of whom having been street agents uh, in locations uh, prior to that, uh, as they went out to teach uh, local law enforcement agencies uh, uh, FBI techniques and uh, uh, behavioral science, uh, they realized, uh, John realized that they didn't really know as much as they should. So while they were out on the road, they started visiting penitentiaries and actually interviewing the actual serial offenders, killers, uh, uh, serial predators to find out what they thought of what they had done. And so for the first time, Gavin, uh, they were able to correlate what was going on in the offender's mind before, during, and after the offense with the behavioral forensic evidence and physical evidence left at the crime scene. And this really was the beginning of uh, criminal profiling, of which John was the pioneer. That's what the first season of Mindhunter was all about. And so we thought with the killer across the table, which I believe is our eighth book, eighth nonfiction book together mm -hmm. now, um, the uh, subtitle is Unlocking the Secrets of Serial Killers and Predators with the FBI's original Mindhunter. What we wanted to do is take a deep dive for the first time into this process, unlock the secrets, uh, let readers know what it really means to interview a violent uh, predator in the penitentiary and what, what we gain from it, how we do correlate uh, that uh, information, that knowledge, those insights 
with uh, crime fighting techniques. So what we did was we took four cases. Uh, not uh, We mentioned all the ones that people know about, uh, mm-hmm. John Wayne Gacy, uh, Charles Manson, uh, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, uh, uh, and uh, Ed Kemper, who was featured prominently in the first season of Netflix, Mindhunter. So we mentioned all of those as background, but we took four cases that people probably don't know much about and show so that we could, you know, give the sense of what happens next and showed how these uh, deep dive interviews actually take place and really give insight. And to answer, uh, you know, uh, to address a question you just mentioned in terms of what writers need to know, uh, we showed there are no, uh, no, no matter what uh, the crime novelists say, there are no Hannibal Lecters in the world. There's nobody like that. Right. Somebody like Hannibal Lecter probably would have been smart enough to uh, do something else. But we, sh- <laughs> yes. but, but we show how these people are not the same as us, as you certainly know from mm-hmm. your background. Uh, they think differently. They don't yes. care about other people. Uh, they, uh, we show how, take Joseph McGowan, the first case we did. This was Mm a, uh, high school science teacher with a master's degree in his thirties. He was very well respected. Unlike a lot of these marginal characters, he was obviously very invested in the system. And yet something led him when, uh, seven-year-old Joan D'Alessandro, a brownie, a beautiful little girl who lived around the corner from him, came to his house, the house he shared with his mother and grandmother in New Jersey, came to his house just to collect $2 for two boxes of Girl Scout cookies. He said to John during this interview, John, as soon as I saw this little girl through the screen door, I knew I was going to kill her. Now, what leads somebody to do that? Somebody who's totally invested in the system to destroy his life and all these mm-hmm. other lives uh, connected with this little girl. Uh, that's the kind of thing we got into. And, you know, it is so common in current television, books, movies, film, and also in real life for someone like, you know, a, a criminal profiler to sit down with with these folks post-conviction but at the time that John started doing this, this was a completely revolutionary concept. I, I would Absolutely imagine there was correct. a whole lot of grief thrown his way about what a, a waste of time this had to have been. You bet. Well, remember, John uh, John started in the Bureau in 1970, I believe. And if, I'm, if I remember my history correctly, J. Edgar Hoover died in 1972. Mm-hmm. So this was still the old bureau when John joined. Uh, I believe there were no uh, female agents. Uh, there were just starting to be African-American agents. Um, and this was the era of just the facts, ma'am. Uh, yes. That's what they wanted. This, um, when John started suggesting they get into this touchy-feely kind of stuff, there was a lot of skepticism, no question about it. And... Uh, but then when he started figuring out that you could actually use this stuff, that, uh, that cases could be solved. And one of the first uh, uh, major cases that everybody knows about is the Atlanta child murders, uh, where he redirected the Atlanta Police Department completely based on what he understood from the interviews that he had done. So you're absolutely right. Now, this book reads to me almost like a, like a case study. And like you mentioned it 
really examines in detail only relatively few people out of all the criminals that John's interviewed over his career. How hard was that to whittle down to from his body of work to to just focus on these few and, and mention these other more prominent cases just in passing? <laughs> well, unfortunately, Gavin, as you well know, uh, we're never going to run out of uh, material for, uh, no. for true crime. Uh, like war, like disease, mm-hmm. we, we continually fight against it, but it's uh, it's never going to go away. So what we did was we wanted to take four cases uh, that were each different from each other and that the public probably didn't know too much about, like Joseph McGowan, and show uh, and show what was involved in these crimes and uh, and how they operated. So uh, it was certainly a whittling down process, but these were, uh, we wanted to take four, each one different from each other. Uh, McGowan had killed only once because he was caught. We think mm-hmm. had he not been caught, he would have uh, killed more than that. On the other hand, we have somebody named Donald Harvey, who may be the most prolific serial killer in American history. We all think of the Ted Bundys as being right. uh, as, as being the most prolific, somebody who cut a swath of murder and destruction from Seattle all the way down to South Florida. Mm-hmm. But Donald Harvey uh, worked for almost 20 years, uh, killing probably close to 100 people. We'll never know for sure, but probably close to 100 people, and nobody even noticed. The reason? He was an orderly and a nurse's aide in a series of hospitals, and wow. everybody he killed uh, was considered a natural death, uh, or, or a predicted death. And yet while he claimed to be a mercy killer, some mm-hmm. of these killings were very vicious, uh, very painful. And, uh, he was trying to play God because he had the same motivation as all of the other depraved killers. We talked about manipulation, domination, and control. That's what they're all about. Manipulation, domination, and control. Now, on that note of of mentioning folks that you people weren't necessarily familiar with, reading through this book made me face a pretty stark reality that I didn't know most of these killers' names, even though, like you mentioned, Harvey had become a really prolific killer. Mm-hmm. That kind of leads me to the logical conclusion and a little bit of fear that such predators are more common than I think. Very likely. we are, And we look right through them. I mean, we expect them all to be... Uh, you know, these obvious, uh, hulking, vicious looking people. And they're not, I mean, mm-hmm. a successful killer is somebody who blends in, who can yes. get away with it for a long time. And, uh, you know, on this, uh, on the same, by the same token, uh, they're probably, uh, well, I would make the case that all people who kill in cold blood have some kind of mental illness. They're not insane. I mean, these are people, uh, almost exclusively, who understand what they're doing. They know mm-hmm. the difference between right and wrong. They just don't care because as you know, you know, from your own experience, other people don't matter to them. They're not real. No, they're just yeah. objects to be used. They're just pursuing their own ends. And then exactly. you know, they intentionally uh, commit acts to get away with the crime leading up to it. And after which clearly demonstrates their sanity, their, their reason that they know this is wrong and that they're not supposed to be doing it. Absolutely right. You guys have taken really obvious care to spare readers from truly gruesome details of these cases, but I would still characterize this text as unflinching. 
Yes. The the killer across the table is definitely not a light read or, or for the faint of heart, and several passages caused my emotions to well up, and I, I imagine it's probably an even mix of the text and, and my experience on the investigative side of sexually deviant crimes. Well, you know, I um, think you, I think Gavin, you've you've hit on something um, very important here. Uh, well, first of all, let me say that in none of our books do we give any trade secrets away, anything that's going to mm-hmm. uh, help a uh, killer. And in fact, we've had a lot of feedback from uh, from killers who've been caught. People like uh, Dennis Rader, the BK, BTK yes. Strangler of Wichita. Uh, and uh, Joseph Paul Franklin, the uh, white supremacist uh, sniper, um, both of whom have told us after the fact, uh, after they were caught, that they had read our books and, uh, uh, well, and what they thought of it. Fortunately, uh, n- none of them said that we had, they said while they had, while we had given them insight into why they do the things they do and what their personalities are like, none of them said we'd help them commit crimes, uh, which is good. But uh, to answer directly your question, Gavin, which is which is a very good one and a very sensitive one. Yes, we, we don't pull punches in terms of describing the crimes, the criminals. But here's the thing. Uh, we have dealt with uh, families of crime and murder victims for more than 20 years now. And mm-hmm. we are very, very sensitive to their feelings. These people are survivors. They're heroes. Um, often they become advocates. They channel their grief into something very, very positive. But I would say, without exception, when we have talked to these uh, survivors, particularly parents of murdered children, shall we say, uh, mm-hmm. they have wanted us to describe exactly what their child or their loved one went through. They wanted us to describe the wounds, the crime, the pain, the uh, desperation that these people went through. They they want as many people as possible, including themselves, to share the agony of their uh, their, um, loved ones. And you know, it it reminds me of... uh, I was uh, when I was exercising this morning. I was watching CNN, and there was this very disturbing story about uh, three uh, students from the University of Mississippi who were had their picture taken at the spot where Emmett Till uh, was killed in 1955 by white racists. And uh, uh, mm. and one of the things that really struck me about Emmett Till is after he was tortured and beaten and killed this 12 or 13 year old boy by uh, white racists in Mississippi, when his body was shipped back to his home in Chicago, his mother insisted on an open coffin. Thousands of people came to the funeral and filed wow. by this coffin to see this horribly maimed young man. She wanted people to understand. And that's what mo- almost all, I would say all of the crime victims that we uh, survivors that we've talked to, they want people to understand what happened to their children. They don't want us to pull punches. They want us to describe. Uh, in a previous book, we talked about uh, a woman uh, who, whose ch- whose six or seven year old daughter was uh, beaten to death by uh, her brother in law, the, the little girl's uncle, and she insisted on going to the funeral home 
and having the, and despite everybody telling her not to, she said, no, I have to see this child take off the shroud. I want to see her completely naked. I want to, I want to examine every inch of her body and see what was done to her so that I can share this suffering. And so find that a very heroic thing. Yeah. When I was going through a homicide investigator school, part of that course, we sat down with an organization that's actually called the Parents of Murdered Children. Yes, I know and, them very well. And so they, you know, shared their stories with us um, from the, you know, the, the the last time that they saw their child to, you know, when the, the cops showed up to tell them, you know, initially what happened. And then over the course of the investigation, how, you know, their relationship with law enforcement, good, bad, or otherwise was, and what it's been like since. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's absolutely one of the, one of the commonalities is, is first, they're never going to have closure. They're never going to. I'm so get glad you said this. that. Uh, Gavin, this, this is a point that we make over and over again. I am, I am so gratified that you said that, uh, that for murder victims, there is no closure. And the other thing I'd like no. to say um, uh, on that regard is um, murder victims need somebody to um, depend on. And as you mm -hmm. know very well, that person is often either the lead detective or the prosecutor. So I give both, yes. both detectives and prosecutors a lot of credit, not only for doing their job, but for emotionally supporting people in desperate need. It was one of the things in, in talking about the, the emotion around these cases too, that I thought really surprised me reading through this book was the reaction that, that uh, actress Scott Glenn had when yes. he listened to some of the, the tapes of the, the, the tortures that were involved or inspired the Thomas Harris book, Silence of the Lambs. Very, and the, yes. the character that he portrayed John and, and how that changed his opinion on the death penalty. Absolutely. It's, it's very, uh, and, you know, we, we have mixed feelings about the death penalty. Uh, I probably, yes. I've, I probably evolved to the point where I'd say felony murder probably should not face the death penalty because it's too difficult to know what really happened. Uh, generally, it's not intended. Mm -hmm. um, it uh, often has to do with minorities. But the kind of people that we deal with, uh, the serial, violent, sexually oriented, predatory types, I have no yes. problem with the death penalty there. These are not uh, we don't have an issue with discrimination against minorities in that field. Uh, we don't have a problem with, uh, did this person really do it? And mm -hmm. these are people who are just so, let's use the word evil, because yes. you know, it, it's hard to be yes. in our business without, uh, without understanding that. And uh, so I'm, I still, John and I both definitely favor the death penalty for these kind of cases because these people are unredeemable and if society has any standards we we've got to uh we we've got to do something like this and you know i i res i certainly respect people who are against the death penalty but what i don't respect is people who use the argument that execution is legalized murder because that's not true because if you say execution mm -hmm. is legalized murder you are trivializing the distinction between the innocent and the guilty. And if you do that, yes. you have no society left. But to get back to your uh, uh, question about Scott Glenn, yes, Scott Glenn, who's a fine actor who played, mm -hmm. shall we say, the John Douglas character in <laughs> yes. the, the movie Silence of the Lambs, 
uh, the whole production uh, came to Quantico. They did some of their uh, filming at the FBI Academy. And Scott uh, tagged uh, along with John for a while to see what he did. And he said he was very much intellectually against the death penalty. And uh, John played him an audio tape made by two uh, repeat criminals named Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, who took great pleasure in uh, torturing and raping women and then killing them and recording what they did. Uh, unfortunately, this is not terribly unusual. We have other cases, mm -hmm. uh, like you've probably heard of Leonard Lake and Charles Ng, but yes. in any event, once, uh, once John insisted that Scott uh, Glenn listen to this tape with headphones, uh, his whole mood and personality seemed to change. And when uh, he got, when he finished, he said to John, I, I just didn't know people like this existed. And I really have to rethink my whole attitude. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. For me on that note, it's, it's really tough for me to even think of, of these predators as fully formed people. Yes, I, I agree. I don't see that their psyche and their intellect is fully formed to the point that they can participate in normal society and share the title of humanity, given what they're willing to do to others. Absolutely. In fact, we, we, were, uh, we rely a lot on the uh, advice and perspective of a forensic psychologist named Dr. Stanton Samenow here in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, he's written a number of books, including a classic called Inside the Criminal Mind. And he makes the point that how can you rehabilitate someone who has mm -hmm. not been habilitated in the first place? And yes. there's a good point there. On that note, one of the things that is a recurring theme throughout what I've, I've read of The Killer Across the Table so far is the debate about whether this type of evil, this predatory behavior is a result of nature or nurture or a combination of that. And yeah. I, I wonder, based on, on your experiences, what your opinion of that is now. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. This is, a, uh, this is a major theme of the killer across the table, nature versus nurture idea. And uh, I think you're also right that it's generally a combination thereof. Uh, certainly, some people are hardwired with uh, anger, impulsivity, antisocial behavior um, for let's say, a lack of empathy or a lack mm -hmm. of uh, social consciousness. Uh, and if they have a bad background, uh, which often includes abuse of either physical, emotional, or sexual uh, type, um, if they are not uh, given intervention, uh, these people can certainly turn out very bad. I mean, uh, John is often asked, well, can you tell a potential predator or serial uh, offender um, uh, as a child. And he said, yes, but so can any good elementary school teacher. So, <laughs> so the, uh, yes. you know, the yeah. uh, signs are often there. We talk uh, about the homicidal triad, which is fire starting, bedwetting and cruelty to small animals and other children. And, um, if you if you are a bedwetter, that may or may not mean anything. But you know you you add that with uh, fire starting, and then if you add cruelty to animals, uh, particularly that one, um, 
you see that in a child, you've got a real problem. And if you don't intervene, you're going to end up with a real problem. I can almost guarantee you. And that's one of the things that that reading through this and and having you know some very minor experience in in the field makes me wonder is that if if someday we're not going to be able to get to the point that we can intervene well ahead of time and to me it also brings up those uh, the efforts to do that bring up a litany of other issues with like almost a minority report situation or you yeah. know civil rights issues and thought mm-hmm. police well i think that's uh, uh that's that's a very real consideration i it, you know uh, we can't um put somebody in prison or confine them in anticipation of a crime. Mm -hmm. But if we see signs, we can try to intervene on a psychological Mm -hmm. level. And by the same token, you know, neither one of us or probably the next couple of generations will be alive. But eventually, you know, you might get to the point where you say, well, we can track every thought. Uh, We can understand that every thought is some biochemical impulse in the brain. Mm -hmm. And if we can do that, uh, so I guess what I'm saying is we get to a completely deterministic uh, level about behavior. Does that mean that no one is responsible for anything? I mean, if that's the case, then Mm -hmm. then are we still living in a moral universe? So I would say the one thing that comes across, across clearly in this book, and I'm sure I will venture to say that has come across clearly in your work and your experience, Gavin, is that whatever the balance between nature and nurture, whatever happened to these people, it all involves choice. Yes, absolutely. If you choose to do something horrible to another person, if you think your impulse is more important than the life or well-being of another individual, you have made a conscious choice, and that is your moral and legal responsibility. On a related note, there's a list in the early part of this book uh, that details assumptions that uh, John and uh, law enforcement in general had about violent predators and, and sexually based crimes. Uh, the book also addresses how that changed, those assumptions changed in John's perspective over his career. I wonder what assumptions you had when you began working with John on this topic and how that changed over your partnership in, in this body of work. Well, that's interesting because I I had written four novels uh, prior to this and I had uh, produced science type uh, documentaries uh, for the PBS science series, Nova. But I guess when I came into this, I the first thing that interested me, like so many other people, was reading The Silence of the Lambs. And mm-hmm. the way I got to know John was uh, uh, when I heard that The Silence of the Lambs was going to be made into a movie, I went to the executive producer of Nova and said, why don't we do a film about the real profilers behind this, what it's really like? And that's when I started to learn. So the, the film was uh, called Mind of a Serial Killer, and it uh, did very well on PBS. But I guess one of my main assumptions was that there were people like Hannibal Lecter out there. Uh, yes. And uh, there aren't. These are these are marginal people. And I guess... You know, I, I guess I went through kind of the same uh, conditioning or deconditioning process that uh, uh, rookie police officers go through, mm-hmm. which is some people <laughs> yes. just some people just think differently, and we we try to 
you know, everything we write about, everything you talk about on your show is really about what we what we refer to as the human condition, but written mm-hmm. large at the extremes of uh, of love, hate, jealousy, revenge, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but I guess most of us going into that still have the feeling that these people are basically like us. If we could just get to them and explain that uh, everything would be okay, or at least that we would understand. And that just turned out not to be the case. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the uh, one of the deep dive interviews we do in the killer across the table was a man named Joseph Condro, and uh, he killed, he raped and murdered teenage girls, which is unfortunately not unusual for right. serial killers. But what was unusual about him was, rather than look for strangers, he would attack he would pre- he would uh target the daughters of friends of his because they trusted him because they uh they would go off with him willingly i mean and that's about as perverse as anything i could think of but that yes. his comfort zone his comfort zone was uh staying within his own environment and to show how depraved uh, this is after killing uh, one girl, uh, one young girl, and carefully hiding her body, he then went back to town, changed his clothes, and went to a parent-teacher conference for one of his own children. It's amazing. Isn't it? Before I got too far off topic, I also wanted to make sure that I, I commended you and John for the way that you wrote this book, Killer Across the Table. Oh, thank you. It could have been a very cold textbook or focused solely on the crimes or only on the psychology at play, but instead, you gentlemen took a different route and shared what you knew of the victims' lives before their murders. You shared what their families, friends, and colleagues knew and thought of them, and you even went to the additional step of including how the defendant's identity impacted the community and those close to the criminals. As much as anything else, I think you've also told the stories of how these crimes impact humankind, whether you set that out to be the objective or not. Well, thank you. No, we we very much did, and I, I very much appreciate that you uh, that you understood that because, as with a detective or a lawyer, I mean, what we are storytellers, and to put this in context, you have to tell the complete story, and mm-hmm. we always, like you, we always work for the victims. The victims are the important people, the victims and the victim survivors. And so it's very important to make them into the human beings they are and to portray their killers and attackers as the monsters they are. You know, just to go back to the death penalty for for one second, because uh, Mm -hmm. uh, something you just said reminded me of this. When we talk about the death penalty for these violent predators, I some and uh, I sometimes uh, people who are against the death penalty for them, uh, I sometimes say, uh, "Well, do you think the Israelis were justified in executing Adolf Eichmann?" And almost to a person, they will say yes. And mm-hmm. I say, "Well, in that case, we're just arguing about numbers, aren't we?" Yeah, you know, and I think for a lot of folks, they are so removed from this whole concept that, much like Scott Glenn, I believe they don't truly understand the depravity of these folks and the suffering that they are willing to inflict on people for the rest of their entire lives if they ever get out, or even on the fellow prisoners if they, you know, however long they're going to live in, in prison. 
you're so right. Um, you probably remember uh, uh, the Pettit case several years ago in uh, in Connecticut, where mm -hmm. uh, two former inmates, uh, one fairly young, the other more toward middle age, broke into uh, the house of a doctor and his family. Uh, they beat him almost to death. They uh, raped and assaulted uh, uh, his wife and three daughters. Uh, they insisted that uh, she accompany them uh, out to the bank and uh, uh, take all her money out and give yes. it to them. Uh, and then uh, eventually, after raping the girls, tied them to the beds and set them on fire. Uh, all three uh, daughters and the wife were killed and the husband was severely injured. Now, these people were caught immediately uh, within minutes of leaving the house. So there was no question as to what they did or that it was them. Uh, the What struck me about the case is the testimony was so disturbing, so graphic that after the jury rendered its verdict, they were all offered uh, post-traumatic distress counseling. Now, that's the jury just having to hear about it. What yes. possible reason can there be to hope that either of these two individuals um, becomes, as you say, a complete human being? That's one of the things uh, uh, on modern rules of evidence that just baffles me is uh, when a judge will exclude crime scene photographs because they are too damaging to the defense. <laughs> you know, well, it's, it's, absolutely. it's the reality the of thing, what happened. And the same thing with, uh, with victim impact statements. Uh, yes. I've heard it. I've heard it said, well, you know, that they, the, the victims uh, shouldn't come into this because they can sway the jury or the judge and each one is going to be different. Well, I say too bad. Uh, yes. If you commit a crime, you have created a relationship, a relationship between offender and victim, a relationship that the victim certainly didn't want, but that existed. So the victim and their survivors, in my view, certainly have a stake in what happens in that trial. A much lighter note on your craft of your, your writing. Uh, mm -hmm. Very you know, successful long-term co-author relationships are notoriously tough and subsequently few. Yes. How, how do you and John divide the labor and what makes you both feel like you're contributing bacon to the table? Well, I think um, we both, uh, gen well, first of all, we both genuinely like each other, which, uh, which helps where we've become close <laughs> friends yes. over the years. Um, uh, and we certainly each have egos, but they, they're directed in different ways. And I think the most important thing is we each respect what the other person does. I mean, we often joke about um, John is a detective who's pretending to be a writer and I'm a writer who's <laughs> pretending to be a detective. But I think we've both um, learned a lot from each other. And uh, so I obviously do most of the writing. I've let, you know, John, John reviews it. We talk about it and outline it first, and then uh, John makes sure that it's uh, all correct. And, uh, you know, that's another thing that we, uh, we do, Gavin. It's very interesting that you bring that up because one thing I have to do as a writer and John has to do as, uh, you know, sort of a memoirist as a detective is 
we have to make sure that the scene is accurate, that mm -hmm. uh, we don't, this is nonfiction, so we can't take a chance on making it better than it was or more exciting than it was. We have to try to be very accurate about uh, how these things uh, go down. And, and so far, I, I think we've done that. On that note, I would imagine after all of the work that the two of you have done together, if, if I were a judge on a panel, mm -hmm. I would absolutely feel compelled to qualify you as an expert witness on criminal oh, psychology. You. <laughs> you know, and, you know, it's one of the things that, you know, for, for, for the criminal justice system, it, it simply means that you know more about a particular topic than, than a lay person. How how comfortable are you with that title of, of expert witness? That's that's a, that's a that's a very good and interesting question. And um, just thinking off the top of my head, here's here's how I can answer that. Um, I feel very comfortable talking to experts like you uh, about this kind of subject, and uh, I I feel very comfortable explaining it to lay people and the public and giving people a sense of what it's really like. What uh, where John and I uh, differ is John feels very comfortable and has many, many times gotten up in front of a task force uh, and said, all right, I think your killer is X, Y, Z. You should do this. You shouldn't mm -hmm. do that. Here's what his pre-offense behavior. Here's what his post-offense behavior will be. That's something I don't feel comfortable with. I don't feel comfortable with. I wouldn't feel comfortable with responsibility of leading a police task force in one direction or the other, knowing that if I were wrong, uh, that the entire investigation Certainly. could go askew. So um, I guess uh, that's that's where you'd have to uh, that's where you'd have to draw the line between somebody like John and somebody like me. I say in all humility. Now, I've heard somewhere, and it's a recurring theme on this podcast, but it, it only takes about a decade of consistent blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success. I wonder what, <laughs> your, what your journey was like from inspiration to, to published writer to best-selling author. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Um, I, uh, I started out, as, as you say, in, uh, in daily journalism. I worked for the Washington Bureau of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I was also... Uh, I worked in uh, management training as a writer for uh, Xerox Corporation. Uh, I've uh, done many documentaries uh, as a writer and producer over the years on a lot of different subjects. And I think part of it is um, I would hope and I would think the same thing that um, a detective or a criminal investigator has to have, which is an overwhelming sense of curiosity and wanting to know how things work, how people uh, uh, operate. And I think that's been probably the most uh, gratifying part of my entire career is getting to be able to uh, spend time with real experts in their mm -hmm. field, and watch how they operate. And so I think, you know, I, uh, I was very fortunate in that my first novel, uh, a novel called Einstein's Brain, which was sort of a science fiction-oriented thriller did very well, which allowed me to continue writing. Um, I'd wrote, written uh, four novels at that point when I met John. And then uh, after when John retired from the FBI, he said, do you think anybody would be interested in my story? And I said, well, I certainly am. Let's go to New York and, <laughs> yes. and present it. And you know, I think what it comes down to, speaking now as a writer, as a professional writer, author, and craftsperson, 
you're always looking for great characters, whether mm -hmm. they are fictional characters or characters in real life. And suddenly, kind of un unexpected to me when I started this documentary for Nova, this great character of John Douglas presented himself to me. And I said, wow, this this guy is for real. You know, there are no uh, there are no uh, uh, Hannibal Lecters mm -hmm. in the world, but there are these super cops and, yes. uh, and John is one of them. I mean, he, he looks like a cop. He dresses like, I mean, he <laughs> looks like an agent. He dresses like an agent. Yes. He kind of swaggers like an agent and he's got a great sense of humor. And so uh, I said, this is somebody I can work with and we can develop something together. And so we wrote Mindhunter. Uh, it did very well. And so we just continued going on. And as I say, I think this is probably our uh, eighth book together now, Gavin. Now, what are you most passionate about these days? What's beyond your writing gets you out of bed in the morning and moving with a purpose? <laughs> oh, well, let's see. Well, other than writing, I am I am a sports fan. Uh, my wife tells me that I'm a news junkie, uh, <laughs> although the news these days is uh, is somewhat grim on mm -hmm. on a lot of uh, a lot of fields. Uh, I I love to read. I love to talk to people. Um, and I love to travel. So uh, those are all, all good questions. And I guess those are the answers. I'm a big baseball fan too. Presumptively, because you seem to be a decent human being, must also be a Red Sox <laughs> fan? Uh, well, I um, I like the Red Sox. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I grew up in, let's, let's put it this way. I grew up in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C., where uh, we had the Washington Senators. And, yes. Uh, as you, you may remember, if you're old enough, uh, the old line was uh, first in war, first in peace, and last in the American League. So um, there, there was not much percentage in nope. rooting for the Senators. So nope. uh, so I really liked the Red Sox. I liked the uh, Yankees, and I liked the Dodgers. And I guess I still do. Although now we have a semi-decent team in Washington, the Nationals, yes. so I, I root for them as well. Yeah, on the subject of journalism, I, I've had a, a few investigative journalists on, on the on the show before. And one of the things that I've, I've enjoyed discussing with them is their, their take on the, the changes in journalism over the last few decades. And to me, it really kind of seems like a lot of the, uh, what were very respected news agencies and very reputable, um, anchors and journalists when I was growing up, I, I think a, a lot of that has really been so watered down with social media and this blogging trend that, it's like we're all in this race to the bottom to be first, and nobody really seems to care about being right so much anymore. It's really concerning well, to me. I think you're absolutely you're absolutely right about that. And one of the problems certainly is the internet. Uh, the internet has uh, has tremendous uh, benefits. Uh, one of which is that you're able to do programs like this and broadcast them over mm -hmm. the internet. Uh, but one of the disadvantages, I think, is that for and I'm showing my age now, but for the generation that uh, is just coming up now and has never known a world without uh, the internet yes. and social media, all sources seem to be the same. I mean, mm -hmm. any kind of wacko uh, website has the same uh, uh, valid validity as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the yes. Wall Street Journal, you know, any of those. So, uh, and I think people, as long as they see it in print, they don't... Uh, they don't understand. I mean, my generation, you know, I growing up in the sixties and the seventies, 
I've often said that uh, my generation was the one that uh, was idealistic enough to think that anything was possible yes. and cynical enough to think that nothing was true. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't know if that's if, if that's the case anymore. So. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I think and and social media is. Uh, I mean, well, also journalists have to file like constantly yes. now I, I don't know if i could if i could uh do it anymore it used to be you know you had deadlines two or three times a day for different editions of the paper or if you were on television you know when, when it had to be uh when, when the story had to be completed but now it's it's around the clock and as you say there really is a race to the bottom because how can you do all of this how can you do this kind of reporting and because of the internet newspapers are losing their advertising base, yes. which means that they're losing some of their resources. And even uh, on uh, on uh, the cable news stations, whether you're mm -hmm. a liberal or conservative, it doesn't seem to matter because so much of what they do is just opinion now. Yes. And, uh, Infotainment. Uh, yeah. You know, and how how illuminating is it to hear again, whether you're talking about liberals or conservatives, the right or the left, how illuminating is it to hear you know journalists talking to other journalists yeah that's one of the things that I, I really miss from my upbringing is being able to to turn on one of only a handful of channels and regardless of what yeah. channel you were on you know around five or six o'clock or you know 10 or 11 at night there was a trusted news anchor who was going to give you right. the facts of what happened without edit editorializing it and allow right. you to draw your own conclusions while also maybe providing context and understanding, but they didn't editorialize them. To me, it seems like everyone is an editor now and no one's a real journalist. Absolutely. I mean, if you go to Fox News, you know you're going to get a certain political bent no matter what the facts are. Right. If you go to MSNBC, you know you're going to get the opposite political bent regardless of what the facts are. And I think that uh, that can be... that. That can be very uh, insidious in the it long is. run. Uh, one of the things that we always talk about, and I give lectures on this, Gavin, is, uh, if, and I'm sure you've had this in your career, uh, if you have a case, uh, a murder case, mm -hmm. say, where what the prosecution, the police, the media, the defense, whoever, uh, if they put out a story that's better than what really happened, the evidence, the facts, don't have much chance. No. And I, I, I use several cases when I talk about this: the John Benet Ramsey murder, yes. uh, the Amanda Knox case in Italy, mm -hmm. the West Memphis Three case in uh, in West Memphis, Arkansas. In each of these cases, the story that came out was so good, so titillating, so entertaining in a very perverse way yes. that what it was much better than what really happened. I mean, I, 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 I've said both to Damian Eccles, who was the uh, lead de uh, uh, defendant in the West Memphis case, and Amanda Knox, I said to both of them, uh, you know, the problem with your case is the story that came out was better than what actually happened. If mm -hmm. I was a novelist, I'd like that story much better than what actually happened. And so, you know, you know from your own background that truth is very elusive, but it's sacred. It is, you know, and I think, uh, you know, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but no one should be entitled to their own facts. Exactly. 
Now, on another lighter note, <laughs> do, do you have a, a favorite fictional detective or investigator in books, TV, or film, Mark? Oh, I guess I, you know, I'd, I'd have to say Sherlock Holmes, and uh, with a close section, a close second of uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's uh, uh, M. Uh, Monsieur Augustin Dupin, because this is a case where uh, fact does follow fiction. These guys, uh, Poe and uh, and uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, were really they their characters were profilers long before profiling really existed. So mm-hmm. if you go back and read uh, the kind of deductive logic that they come up with, uh, they're really brilliant. Yes. And uh, I don't think it's uh, it's neither accidental nor is it untrue to say that people like John Douglas and uh, his generation, in some ways. We're uh, we're imitating people like Sherlock Holmes and uh, Monsieur Dupin. So yes, I uh, I really like them. Uh, I I like very much uh, the work of Raymond Chandler mm-hmm. and Dashiell Hammett and uh, modern people. You know, I certainly Thomas Harris is as as good as they come. Yes. And, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of good ones out there. Fortunately. Now I asked this last question of all the authors who come on the show, Mark, but God forbid it should come to pass. But if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what fictional investigator, assassin, or maybe even a revenge artist would you want on the case? Ooh, that's that's a really interesting question that I have never been uh, asked before. Um, you know, I think, um, huh, I think, I probably have to say uh, Hercule Poirot, uh, Agatha Christie's yes. detective, because he's got such a good track record. Yeah, he's batting a thousand. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so I guess based on that, uh, you know, that's a fascinating question. No one's ever asked me in all these years. So uh, so yeah, I'm I'm, I'm going to go with Miss uh, Mr. Poirot. Uh, yes, who would you say, Gavin? I would actually kind of lean toward a little bit of a task force mentality, which seems to have gained popularity oh, on the show. So I, I would want a competent investigator with someone like a Mitch Rapp on the back end, just in case they got away at trial. So you know, I would, uh, I think I'd go with uh, Bosch and Mitch Rapp. Uh, I can't argue with that either. <laughs> uh, where can readers connect with you and, and find your works, maybe get updates on, on new releases and new projects? Well, uh, our website is called mindhuntersinc.com. Uh, M-I-N-D-H-U-N-T-E-R-S-I-N-C.com. And The Killer Across the Table, Mind Hunter, and all the other books are, uh, are readily available on uh, Amazon and at your local bookstores. Mark, I greatly appreciate you making time and sharing your expertise with us. This has been a phenomenal interview, and I'm exceptionally grateful. Well, well, thank you, Gavin, and thank you for your, uh, your sensitive as well as penetrating questions. Uh, you know, it's always it's always a great pleasure to uh, to talk to somebody who really knows what they're doing and, and understands what what writers are trying to do. Well, flattery will certainly get you asked back. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been New York Times bestseller and Emmy Award winner Mark Olshaker. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.